Welcome to The Way of Christ, a path for spiritual growth presented by Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Each week, we will explore central topics of the Christian faith and practice, emphasizing what it means to be a member of a community committed to spiritual growth in Christ. Our focus for Season 1 is Mapping the Christian Faith, and Episode 6 is titled, What's Stopping Us? Part 1, The Obstacles in the Road, Sin, Death, and the Devil. Today's discussion is led by Cody Turner and was originally recorded on October 15th, 2023. Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here uh, this morning. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh God, you have made us in your own image and redeemed us through Jesus, your son. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in the bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth. That in your good time, all nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Feel free to come on in. It's wonderful to see you again this morning. Thank you for returning as we continue our uh, fall formation program. Um, Just as a brief review, so over the last month or so, we've talked about where we're going, that we as a church are journeying toward life in God that the path was made for us in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we've looked at what it means to be the church and human beings and anthropology. Now we're going to focus on this question. Why aren't we there yet? Why aren't we there yet? What is it that's stopping us from getting to our destination? What are the obstacles in our path, both individually and collectively, that not only seek to make us stumble along the way, but are also actively working against us? It takes us all back to Mark's question from week one, if you remember it. Why is it so difficult? It sounds easy, but why is it not? I feel that sense acutely, and I'm sure that you do as well. And I want to use the language of both, uh, well, let me start with this. The reality is this, uh, whether we want to recognize it or not, there are forces that are at work both within us and outside of us that oppose God and want to keep us from the fullness of life in God that we were created for. And I use the language both of within and outside intentionally because scripture actually speaks about it in both ways. So take this for one instance. This is Romans 7. Paul writes this, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Skipping down a little from there, he goes on to say, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So no need for a show of hands, but uh, (laughs) has anyone ever felt like that? I'll say I have 
for sure. He's describing this deeply personal internal struggle. No matter how much he knows what we ought to do, there's something within him at work that is preventing him to do it. He just can't do what he's supposed to. But scripture also talks about this reality as a struggle against something that is external, outside to us as well. Uh, This is Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So now in this example, Paul is describing outward forces that are at work against us. And however we experience that struggle, whether within our sinful selves or without, we may use in different language to try to describe it. The flesh on the inside, evil, the powers of darkness, the devil, demonic activity. There's many different ways that we can describe it. And ultimately what we call it is the presence of sin. The presence of sin both within us and without us. So we're going to be talking today about how to understand the nature of sin, its presence in the world and in us. The clergy team made sure to assign me a really light topic for you here today. So, (laughs) but before we get too deep into our content, I want to make uh, one, uh, raise one point. It's worth asking why wait until now to talk about sin? Why have we taken so long? We're about a month into this process. Reinhold Niebuhr, after all, called the presence of sin the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. You don't need to wonder whether or not sins uh, really exist. Just look around. It's everywhere, right? So why wait this long to talk about it? Well, on the one hand, a doctrine of sin is absolutely crucial for us to understand the nature of the gospel. It helps us to see that the world is not the way that it should be. And Christian teaching is truthful about this and has a robust way of accounting for it. And what's more, any Christian teaching that does not include or even, uh, or even tries to negate the reality of sin cannot fully understand what the gospel is. Sin is wrapped up into our message. What on earth did Jesus rescue us from if there is no sin and death to begin with? However, and and this is important, we can't properly understand the doctrine of sin until it comes after the knowledge of God and his intention for creation first. So first, someone needs a vision of God and his creation. That has to be the starting point. That's why we began with journeying into life in God. And that allows us to see that creation is fundamentally good because God made it and declared it to be so. If we begin with sin and not with the goodness of God and the world, then our understanding can become warped. We might fall into the trap of thinking that humans, the cosmos, the physical world around us is fundamentally bad, and that actually is foreign to the Christian message. 
That's more like Gnosticism than it is the Christian gospel. So first, we need a vision of God and his love for the world, and then we can properly begin to think about sin and the powers of darkness. And it's worth adding that this pattern is actually all throughout Scripture as well. It was after Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus that he became more deeply aware of his sinfulness as he looked back. When Peter first saw Jesus perform a miracle before him, his first response was, depart from me for I am a sinful man. The revelation of God had taken place first, and then his response was a recognition of his sinfulness. And again, when Isaiah saw the vision of the heavenly throne in Isaiah 6, he beheld the glory of God and the angels swirling around the throne. And then after that point was his response, behold, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips. So first a vision of God's holiness and his love for the world. And then we start to begin to understand what sin is. And one final caveat before we uh, continue. It's important to say that Jesus has already defeated sin through his death and resurrection. Once and for all, it's been defeated. His victory over it is sure and certain. So when we talk about sin, we're talking about that register, that already not yet register that's shown up in our conversations so far. Jesus has vanquished sin, and yet we still see its full effects in the world until the age to come. Gregory of Nyssa used this great uh, example where Jesus had cut off the head of the dragon, the, the dragon of sin, but yet it continued to convulse in the world until the world to come. So the, the, the defeat, but the still presence, you know, it still remains until, until the resurrection. It's important to keep that in mind. So how might we start to articulate what sin is? Well, as Episcopalians, we are a prayer book people. So let's start with something that may sound familiar to most of you. This is the first half of our general confession, right one. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Notice how in our prayer of confession, we get a multivalent view of sin. We're using a lot of different languages to describe what has happened. First, it's described as erring from God's ways or from straying from the path. It goes on to say that we follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Perhaps you might think twice the next time you try to tell someone to follow their heart in the future. And of course, God can use our hearts, but it also can lead us astray as well. And then it continues on from there of disobeying God's law, continues with both active and passive sin, that we can commit sin that is both active and passive as well. And notice too that in the absolution that follows, we hear both pardon and deliverance. The priest speaks pardon and deliverance from sin which actually ties into that internal, external uh, reality of sin that I mentioned just a few moments ago. 
The pardon ties towards the individual, perhaps even the internal fault, pardon for something that you have done. And then the language of deliverance, which is Exodus language, is speaking about being freed from this external enslavement or bondage to sin like an outside force. So even built within our, our liturgy, we hear about this multivalent nature of what sin is. So again, sin is described in numerous ways in our tradition. And it's helpful for us to maintain our multivalent language because sin is complex. It's multifaceted. So here's three more ways that we can describe sin. First is this. St. Augustine described it as disordered love, as loving anything more than God. This is helpful because it maintains that we actually can enjoy and love things that are around us. Some things are lovely and were created by God to be enjoyed. And those things can point us to God who is himself love and is able to be uh, infinitely enjoyable. But if things start to become disordered, if things meant to point us to God become the ultimate ends for ourselves, then we suddenly have disordered love at play. Consider this quote from St. Augustine, which which may very well be in your uh, handout. I think it's the last one on on the page, the back page for you. So just to summarize part of it, uh, Augustine starts out by saying that uh, suppose we're exiles in a foreign country and we're so unhappy with where we are that we decide to build ships and carriages so that we can make our way back home. And as we begin to travel, we suddenly realize that we kind of like traveling. We like the feeling of being in a ship and in a carriage. It treats us well. It seems to suit us. Everything feels pretty good. So we start to prolong the journey. We start to take the scenic routes to our destination. So much so eventually that we completely lose interest in reaching our destination at all. I'm going to pick up and and quote St. Augustine about halfway down on that block uh, quote there. He says this, well, that's how it is in this mortal life in which we are exiles away from the Lord. If we wish to return to our home country where alone we can be truly happy, we have to use this world, not enjoy it, so that we may behold the invisible things of God brought to our knowledge through the things that have been made. That is, so that we may proceed from temporal and bodily things to grasp those that are eternal and spiritual. So he's distinguishing between something that's meant to be used for a greater end or a greater purpose and what's meant to be enjoyed as its own end. And that only thing that is to be enjoyed as its end is God himself. And it's when we confuse the two, what's supposed to be used versus what's supposed to be enjoyed, that we experience the sin of disordered love. Here's a second example for you. Martin Luther described sin as misplaced trust or idolatry. 
Idolatry, of course, is when one worships something created as something that is other than the true God, when you worship an object rather than God. In Romans 1, Paul describes individuals who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is idolatry in its truest sense. Ultimately, Luther points out that uh, what turns into worshiping humanity rather than God, it results in, and he's drawing upon Augustine here, on someone becoming curved in on themselves, in curvatus se. I'm quoting Luther here, which again, I think is on your handout. Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. So in other words, not only does one misuse material things when they're in this posture of being turned into yourself, he or she could even bastardize spiritual things as well for the sake of one's own selfishness and idolatry. Or to put it differently, the issue of idolatry comes down to where you put your trust. Listen again uh, to Martin Luther. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. And jumping down to the bottom, that now, I say, upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. From that quote, it's easy to see how many people view themselves as their God today, isn't it? The third understanding is pretty straightforward. It's understanding sin as sheer disobedience. So we've gotten idolatry, we've had disordered love, and now we have disobedience. Doing what God says he does not want to be done. I'm reminded of the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. When she attempted to seduce him, Jesus, uh, jo- Joseph's response was, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? To participate in that act would have been disobedient ultimately to God, and so Joseph refused. You could also take Psalm 51 as an example, where David had committed such an atrocity against Bathsheba and her husband. And in Psalm 51, he laments and says, against God and God only have I sinned. That ultimately sin is disobedience towards God. So there's a couple of ways for us to understand what precisely sin is. But before we continue on, I think that there are two key governing principles to keep in mind to kind of sum this whole description up. First is this, the key impact of sin is relational. It disrupts our relationship between God and ourselves and therefore our relationship with one another. 
We could even use the language of death here, that sin results in the death of our relationships with God and one another, and ultimately in deaths uh, ourselves physically. And the second thing is this, sin is not part of our created nature. It's a distortion of human nature. In the Christian tradition, it's understood that sin makes us less human than more human because it deforms the image of God in us. And that's an important point to maintain because that's why Jesus could be the son of God and fully human while being sinless. If sin was necessary for the human nature, then Jesus was not fully like us. So uh, his sinlessness actually made him the most fully human person of all. All right. So we've discussed what sin is and mentioned some key ways to understand sin and its nature. Now I want us to turn our attention to a new question. Where does sin come from and what happens to us because of it? So where does it come from and what does it do to us? Of course, the church has pointed to Genesis 3, the story of the sin in the Garden of Eden as both the source and the paradigmatic example of sin in God's good creation. So in other words, we point to the Garden as both the first sin itself, this is when sin was introduced into the world, and as the prime example of what sin is. The problem, of course, was that a seed of doubt was planted in the human mind. Did God really say was the question that spun everything out of control. This is the basis on which humanity's relationship with God was ruptured. And interestingly enough, it's a lingering question that always pops up. Did God really say? We always, we continue to ask that question. But of course, the church, is, the church doesn't just believe that this was the first instance of human sin. We've also taught that something deeper, something universal occurred because of it. This is Romans 5, 12. Paul writes that just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin and so death spread to all because all have sinned. In other words, a sort of Pandora's box was unleashed through that first sin, causing sin and death to spread throughout the earth. And Paul goes on to say there, from there, to describe sin and death not only as present among us, but exercising dominion over us as well. Which brings us to part two of the question. What happens to us because of sin? Well, I want to answer that question by taking a look at sin's effect on the human will. What does sin do to the human will? In the garden before the fall, we would say that Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin. They were able to not sin. They could avoid it. God had created them perfectly, completely with a perfectly free will, and they were able to enjoy a perfect relationship with God. 
All of this was at their disposal before the fall. They were free to experience what they were made for. But then came the first sin in which the human will was turned away from God and toward itself. This is that incurvatus se that Luther and Augustine were talking about. And it's worth adding that it was Adam's sin that was unique. Isn't it interesting that when Paul describes the first sin in his letters, especially to the Roman, Romans, he mentions Adam by name, not Eve. Eve was deceived, but Adam was the one who willfully disobeyed. So the great turning of the will results in the fall. And as a result, the human will is then put under bondage. Suddenly, the human will has gone from being able not to sin or being able to not sin, that's before the fall, to not being able not to sin. Does that make sense? Or to put it differently, the human will is now corrupted and imprisoned. It just sins. That's the bondage of sin and death. This is Augustine again. The consequence of that condemnation was that man who would have become spiritual even in his flesh by keeping the commandment instead became fleshly even in his mind. And man who had become pleased with himself due to his pride was now given over to himself due to God's justice. He was not given over to himself, however, in such a way that he was fully his own master. Rather, he was at odds with himself. And in the place of the freedom he desired, he lived a life of harsh and bitter slavery under the one to whom he had given his consent by sinning. By his own will, he was dead in spirit, and against his own will, he was going to die in body as well. He had forsaken eternal life, and unless delivered by grace, he was condemned to eternal death. And this reality is passed on to every single individual. What we thought would grant human freedom actually led to bondage and decay. But through God's saving acts in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has rescued us from the powers of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, as Paul writes in Colossians 1. As a result, he has restored the ability of the human will to turn back toward God. So when we are united by Christ, with Christ by faith and in our baptism, we are transferred into his kingdom and we go from being completely captive to sin, from a state of not being able to say no to it, to being able to say no. And of course, at that point on, the baptized never ever sin again, right? I had to be sure you're still paying attention. This is uh, heavy content here. But what does happen is that we engage in a journey by God's grace where we unlearn the ways of sin and death and learn the ways of God's life and peace. And it is a process. 
Even as we taste and see the Lord's goodness, we continue to be enticed by sin all along the way. Much like God's people were enticed to return to slavery in Egypt when the going got tough in the journey to the promised land. But as we continue on this sanctifying process, the goal is that we continue to bend our will to the will of the Father, which is the truest form of freedom of all. So that's the progress of the human will from pre-fall to fall to redemption. And ultimately, we will reach the consummation when we will not be able to sin in the world to come. So that's a lot of information at once. And so I figured it may be helpful for us to understand um, a few thoughts, for me to share a few thoughts with you uh, related to spiritual growth so that we can end this time together. It's important to us remember, to remember despite any empirical evidence to the contrary, that sin's fate has already been decided. As we hear in today's Old Testament reading, there will come a day when the city of sin will be no more, never to be rebuilt again. There will be no more tears, no more death, not a single person will be in need. That is the vision of where we're headed. And in the meantime, you, my Christian brothers and sisters, are not helpless against sin. If you are in Christ, you have been transferred from the dominions of darkness. And even though you may struggle against sinful patterns and habits and forces, there is victory available for you. You can grow in holiness you can unlearn even the most besetting sins, the deepest ingrained patterns of sins that are within you and outside of you. But all of it is accomplished not by your own strength, but by God through his Holy Spirit. And oftentimes the going gets tough as we struggle against sin. That's why it's important for us to remember that we're meant to overcome it together. God did not intend us to struggle off secluded and alone. We are to do it together as God's people. And still the struggle against sin, whether internal or external or social or beyond, will remain with us until the end of the age. It's just part of the territory. We will continue to struggle with sin. And that nudges us forward in hope. To look forward to our resurrected life when we will be able to enjoy God forever and behold him in his glory and declare like we hear in today's Old Testament passage, this is our God, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, we have a few minutes for questions for Father Cody on the topic of sin. I am unclear 
as to the distinction between the action of Eve and the action of Adam. You, you said that, that, uh, that Adam was the one who disobeyed, but how about Eve's uh, acceptance of, of the, of the uh, temptation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, th thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So at the end of the day, both of them ate from the fruit, didn't they? Yeah. Now, the, distinct, the distinction that I want to make there is actually, you know, there's a little bit of a nuance that takes place within the narrative. If we take the narrative of the first sin seriously, Eve was deceived by a lie and, and thus ate. There's no real detail that says anything about Adam's thought about it. It just appears that he was just disobedient. And so perhaps that's why in the New Testament, when we talk about the first sin, we speak of Adam rather than Eve. That's one of the many different ways why uh, we might do that. At the end of the day, both were culpable of doing that which God ultimately did not say. But there seems to be a little bit of a distinction between the cause as to why each one did it. Other questions? Father Cody, I know we're talking about sin, but we never talk about evil. We talk about the doctrine of sin and you know, the legions, you know, the legions of Satan that work against us and use our family members who are weak to work against us to separate us from God. We don't talk a lot about evil. Sin, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and I think that that manifests in different ways. You can see that as, you know, the powers of darkness around, you know, the Gospel of Luke especially talks about the powers of darkness kind of, kind of gathering around Jesus during his earthly ministry. Um, so it could be unseen powers. There's also, didn't have time to go into it today, so perhaps maybe on Wednesday night we can discuss this uh, a little bit as well. Um, the concept of social sin, of, of systemic sin, uh, of institutions that are impose, imposing sinful practices on us, affect us, impact us. Um, and so it, it can come, evil can come in, in multiple different ways. Yes, thank you for that uh, reflection. Hey, Cody, first of all, great job. Really appreciate it. Um, you talked about the um, kind of the battle against sin being like a communal thing. And I wondered if you could say more about that, um, especially as we as a church, like, are kind of on this like growth journey, like um, maybe examples of how that could work or ways you've seen that play out or bear fruit. You know, there's a couple of different things that immediately come to mind. The biggest one of all to me is, is what we're gathered around here to do on Sunday mornings. When we gather around communally to hear the word proclaimed and to hear the sacrament uh, or to partake from the sacrament, um, that that is, you know, definitely something that nurtures us, encourages us in the struggle against sin and something where we can witness the overcoming of sin together, both by reiterating the, the story of salvation together, but also the impact. We believe that, you know, that God is doing something through the scriptures and in the sacraments. We experience the forgiveness of sins and sanctification through these processes. Um, you could also, you know, speak of gathering together for spiritual practice, um, uh, prayer groups, um, confession, different things like that are the workings of the community working together in our struggle against sin, the flesh, and the devil. You can see that in action on Wednesday nights if you uh, That's right. Yeah, good, good plug. Good plug. <laughs> Check that out. This is actually a question that was provoked by the first question. So it sounds like, just from the response, 
that the New Testament focus is more on Adam's sin because he didn't, there wasn't really an explanation for his sin. It suggests that why we sin matters, and it certainly does in earthly justice. That's why we have mitigating circumstances. Crimes of passion, where you lose your head in a jealous rage versus premeditated murder. Anyway, I just wanted you to comment on that, yeah. the biblical view of that. Just yes and amen. I, I don't know that I have uh, anything particular to add uh, to that, but uh, yeah, it is a reality that, you know, that there are forces imposing upon our will, um, whether from within or without, that bends us towards specific ends. Um, and so, yes, the, the motive of sin uh, definitely plays a part. It, it's a reflection of our corrupted uh, experience. Yeah. Thank you. In the Genesis passage, the serpent is the one that initiated the sin. The devil, is there a force of the devil or is that something internal within the humans that causes them to deviate yeah, from the will of God? Talk about the serpent. Yeah, does evil have a personality? Uh, we, we see the narrative of, of uh, um, a devil being present uh, within the narrative of scripture. Um, Jesus believed in the presence of a devil uh, for sure, uh, perhaps multiple devils, uh, demons, uh, in other words. Um, and so, yes, I do think that that's, that evil does have personality, um, and so that there is a devil, um, demons, a whole unseen world working against the will of God, uh, for sure. I want to thank you so much for that, because I've been having this argument for like 20 years. <laughs> so when I was in my Old Testament class at college, um, I, I always was so amazed by the equality of man and woman in the book of Genesis, how women came from the rib, not from the head or the foot. And when I read Genesis 36, and it talked about how Eve spoke up, and then she, we, she turned to her husband who was with her. He said nothing and he wasn't off naming animals or whatever. And I was in open Scotland on the trip where I met Christian and I got into an argument with my travel mate because in her Bible, he was not there. Hmm. And so ever since that moment, I have a Bible on my iPhone. <laughs> Let me show you Genesis. So thank you so much because I feel that that really helps to solidify the equality between men and women in, uh, in, in God's names. Praise God. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. What a joy uh, to be with everybody. We are going to uh, continue on in our discussion on Wednesday night. We hope you will make plans to join us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Way of Christ, A Path for Spiritual Growth. Join us next week for our discussion titled, How Do We Get There? Part 3, The Spirit as a Guide in Prayer. Those in the Dallas area are invited to join us on Wednesday nights as we dive deeper into our weekly topics in a dynamic group discussion. This podcast is produced by Church of the Incarnation located in Dallas, Texas. Our sound editor is Robert Nash. Our theme song is Raise a Voice by Emery. Follow us on Instagram at IncarnationDFW or on Facebook at Church of the Incarnation. For more information on our church, please visit our website, www.incarnation.org. Thank you for listening.